going deep. I feel like Kalo on the Miami Heat. The words I speak off this sheet are like a three-peat. I don't just hop on a track. I bring running cleats. I'm a player for real, more than an athlete. Let my mama tell it. Could have ran for the Senate. Instead, I penned it for Donovan Bennett. I'm cemented. This a deep dive. In your headphones or a long drive. Up close and personal, just like you courtside. They ain't no out of bounds here. No offsides. We going live in one, two, three, four, five. You are now tuned in to Going Deep with Donovan Bennett. Yes, thank you once again, Capital. This is Going Deep. As you just heard, I am Donovan Bennett. And I love the show because I get to shed a light on some important topics, but also important journalism. And both is true in this episode. You may remember last week, the Washington Post, who's constantly doing outstanding journalism, published an article by Dave Moranis and Sally Jenkins titled, Jerry Jones Helped Transform the NFL Except... When it comes to race, no real surprise, but there are many surprises in this story, including the uncovering of a photo. They unearthed the photo that's 65 years old of a 14-year-old, Jerry Jones, blocking entryway to school of a couple young black children hoping to register for their education. At least he was in the vicinity. Now, the photo took a life of its own. There were think pieces about the photo and what it means for race in America, in the NFL, in present day. There were conversations about why people weren't having more conversations about the photo or asking Jerry Jones to speak on the nature of the photo. And what got lost is that all those things were dealt with and answered in the actual story, in the reporting. But people focused on the splashy headline and the Twitter story and not the actual journalism. So I want to do the opposite. I want to go deep on not just that photo, but what that photo signifies and why that photo was an important piece of the story. To do that, I'm joined by one of the authors of that story, Sally Jenkins one of the most powerful sports writers of our time who has long been making the Washington Post the newspaper of record when it comes to keeping owners behaving badly accountable. Well, she joins us and talks about why this story, why now, and how did they find that photo after all these years? Let's listen and learn as we go deep with Sally Jenkins. So, Sally, I think this reporting is really important and I've been riveted by the entire series. I've loved it, even though I don't love the topic. The Washington Post series called Blackout. Part of the series is about the NFL's hiring practices or, quite frankly, lack thereof. You came into working on this story with David Moranis, someone you've never worked with before. How did you two get put together on this story specifically? Uh, well, David Marinus is one of our great writers. He's a two-time Pulitzer Prize winner. Uh, he wrote a, a prize-winning biography of Bill Clinton, prize-winning biography of uh, Roberto Clemente. I mean, he's just uh, the gold standard for the industry of journalism and also biography and history. So it was a real privilege to work with him. Uh, we were put together by editors as an experiment, and uh, it worked beautifully. We've we've both agreed we'd like to do something else together. So it was a wonderful experience that way. And it was, you know, it was important that David be on the project because he's really got a grip on long term American history. Uh, journalism is is about, uh, you know, today. And David really brought the, the, the span to the story that we needed and wanted. Well, I think that experiment worked out quite well. You talk about the long-term aspect of it, you did the work of not just going back into Jerry Jones's past, but his father and grandfather's past. What led you down that road? And when you went down it, what did you learn? Well, the genesis of the story was a, a series called Blackout that the Washington Post has been doing in our sports section, which is examining uh, from a data standpoint, but also from the standpoint of individual teams and owners and coaches why there isn't greater representation of black men in the head coaching ranks. 
you know, uh, upwards of 70% of the league's labor force is black. Uh, these are men who have been studying the game of football their whole lives, and yet they're underrepresented at the very top of the profession when it comes to head coaching. Uh, if you're a player in the NFL, your ability to continue working in your lifelong profession is seriously limited uh, if you look at the data. And so our question is, why is that? What are, what are the, the biases? Uh, what are the systemic impasses and roadblocks that's preventing you know, some, some really great, deeply knowledgeable black men from getting to the top of the profession? And this story made a lot of noise. And I actually think this is the great tragedy of the story is that in many spaces, it was reduced to a photo. And that photo of Jerry Jones, in some cases, outshadowed the great in-depth reporting. I guess as journalists, that's what happens. We work on something, we put our heart and soul into it, and then it goes out into the atmosphere as soon as it's published and the world makes of it what they will. But talk me through even the thought to go back and look for, for such a photo. How did you come across the photo of Jerry Jones back in North Little Rock, Arkansas, you know, days before being 15 in the era segregation and desegregation, witnessing the blocking of uh, black students looking to get education? Yeah, it, it was a natural connection to make. It, you know, we decided to home in on Jerry Jones uh, for the series, the Blackout series. We decided we wanted to do a piece on an owner, and Jerry Jones is the logical owner to do because he is the most powerful and influential individual owner in the league. In fact, he's known as the shadow commissioner. And once you decide, okay, we're going to do a feature story about Jerry Jones in the context of uh, race it becomes natural to say, well, okay, how did he grow up around race? How was he raised? What views was he raised with? How has he potentially involved, you know, evolved? Uh, he represents a, a particular generation of NFL owner. He's one of the most senior NFL owners. And so, you know, you go to Little Rock, which is where he grew up in North Little Rock, actually, which is a separate town right across the river from Little Rock. And uh, the first thing I did actually was just Google uh, when did Jerry Jones's high school desegregate? Because Little Rock obviously was a fulcrum of civil rights activity and school uh, segregation riots uh, in the 1950s. We knew that. And the natural question was, well, did Jerry Jones witness any of that or live through any of that? And the answer was, of course he did. Uh, but we didn't know how specifically he lived through it until until I Googled, you know, when did North Little Rock High School desegregate? And what pops up are several news stories about these six black kids who in the same week that the Little Rock Nine uh, were attempting to gain entrance to Central High School, uh, creating this national controversy where Eisenhower, President Eisenhower has to send the 101st Airborne in to protect black kids in uh, Little Rock. Six uh, black kids uh, are doing the same thing at Jerry Jones's high school, uh, North Little Rock High School, they attempt to march up the steps and enroll on the first day of the fall school term, September 9th, 1957. And they're met by a mob of white uh, teenagers and white men uh, who rough them up and, and push them back down the stairs. And there happened to be a lot of national press there that day because of what was also happening at Central High School just across the river. And uh, there's an associated press photographer there named William Strader. And he takes a a, a really vivid photograph. And that photo came up with the news stories about the so-called North Little Rock Six, the separate six students who tried to integrate Jerry Jones's high school. So I, you know, I saw the photo, you know, almost immediately in reporting the story. And, um, you know, I was looking at it and I thought, well, you know, there's no way like a young Jerry Jones could be in this photo, you know, is there? Um, and so I just started looking at it. And in fact, there's a face at the back of the crowd that if you've covered Jerry Jones for enough years, uh, like I have, you go, well, yeah, actually that could be him. And so everything is digitized these days. So I downloaded a couple of North Little Rock High School yearbooks and started comparing Jerry Jones's yearbook photos to the face in the, uh, in the Associated Press photo of the mob on the steps. And, and of course it was him. Uh, 
he acknowledged actually being in that photo uh, several years ago in a, a little known oral history that he did for the University of Arkansas. And David Marinus uh, found that oral history in the archives at the University of Arkansas. And so we, we not only knew that it was Jerry Jones in the photo, but we knew that he acknowledged being in the photo on one other occasion. And so that allowed us to, to interview him about it and, and, and present it to him and talk to him about it. This to me was shocking for not the reasons that it was a conversation on many sports talk shows. One, I was shocked that this photo wasn't found before or discussed before this point. Two, I was shocked that you were able to look through it and notice that it was him. I look vastly different in the span with which I've had kids, never mind what I looked like when I was a kid. So the fact that you had the eye to say that young man might be Jerry Jones is fascinating. But, you know, to understand someone in present day, you kind of understand what shapes them, not to make you a therapist, but often as journalists, we are a little bit of a therapist and a sociologist. When you talk to him about that photo, did you notice any remorse, contrition, explanation, defense? Well, sure. I mean, I, I think, you know, he, he expressed uh, pretty articulately that, you know, he has vivid memories of being on buses in Little Rock where there might be two or three white people at the front of the bus and then 25 black people, you know, crammed into a small section at the back of the bus. And, uh, you know, I think he asked himself why he wasn't more inquisitive as a younger man, uh, whether he should have been more politically engaged as a younger man. Um, you know, those were the sorts of topics that we went over. Um, you know, now he was a month shy of his 15th birthday and his, his explanation of his presence on the steps is that he was more of a bystander, that he was curious to see what was going on. Uh, but you know, that frankly is the least credible part of the interview, uh, at least as far as I was concerned, because I really find it hard to believe that he wasn't more aware of, of what obviously was the talk at every single dinner table in Little Rock among the adults, uh, which was segregation and desegregation of, of public schools in Little Rock. I mean, literally the 101st Airborne is being sent in by the president because there's riots in the streets um, outside of uh, these these high schools. So, you know, it, it, I was just curious. I just happened to be there, uh, you know, because I wanted to see what was going to happen. You know, I think he was probably more aware of exactly the nature of that moment than he admitted to with us. Um, however, he does, he did talk about, uh, in, in really interesting terms, uh, race relations in Little Rock in the 1950s, his father's grocery store, uh, you know, uh, catered to black customers. Uh, Jerry Jones passed out circulars in, in the black neighborhoods to try to get customers to come to his father's store. Um, but there was also in Little Rock, you know, a, a very strict and, and circumscribed sense of place, right? I mean, you could sell groceries to, to black children, but you didn't necessarily want your kids to go to school with them. So he was somewhat forthcoming. I think he has a lot more to say if, he, if, if someone could press him about it. I, I, I hope he talks about it in, in more depth than he did with us. We, we had a hard time getting him to talk about uh, about some of it, to tell you the truth. Well, even if you took him at face value for his curiosity and retroactively wishing he was more aware, generations removed as a fully evolved adult, he certainly can be more active in terms of being anti-racist, if you will, and with his platform, within his own organization. I find it fascinating talking about him telling you that he catered to black customers because in a way now the way he runs a business he does still cater to black customers but he doesn't necessarily use that platform to make their lives better did you glean from the character study that you did on him that less so about race he's more self-interested about the color green Oh, I, I think that's true. You know, I, I think that's been his focus and his main attention. You know, he's built out his businesses in every conceivable way. He's he's almost obsessed with 
with building out and growing out his businesses. And so that encompasses, you know, all people, women. I mean, Jerry Jones was one of the first people uh, to argue that the NFL should be marketing to women. Uh, you know, so, so yeah, I mean, to the extent that it, it plays into his, frankly, quite genius views of, uh, of businesses. Uh, yes, he's very alert to that. Now, what he's not alert to uh, is that the fallacy of the up by your bootstraps um, philosophy that, that he holds about his own personal success story. And, you know, he genuinely believes, or at least argued with us, that, you know, he he pulled himself up by his own bootstraps and he became a billionaire owner of a, of a football team. And so anyone can do what he did. Uh, you know, that's where I think he's probably evolving. You know, he's just beginning to acknowledge that black men may face obstacles that he did not face. I mean, you know, one of the interesting things in the in the piece that we did is that, you know, he tells this story about how he was able to get a line of credit uh, to buy you know, the Cowboys and actually had bid on, on the Miami Dolphins years earlier, uh, when the AFL and the NFL were merging, um, he was able to, uh, get a big oil deal by getting, um, a friend, um, a, a, his old coach, Frank Broyles to play golf with a, a Houston oil executive at Augusta national golf club. And he showed almost zero recognition that, that those routes to business success are not available to his black peers, you know, uh, they, they just aren't, I mean, and, and one of the most interesting moments in the story is when his vice president of personnel, Will McClay, who's a black man, really interesting, bright, uh, lovely guy who's built a very competitive team for Jerry Jones, uh, this season, you know, Will McClay told us that his father was a Marine in Vietnam and came home from serving his country and couldn't even get a home loan, much less a line of credit to buy an NFL team. Uh, and so that's where there's this sort of gap in understanding, I think, uh, among among not just Jerry Jones, but probably multiple other NFL owners. You know, th this up by your bootstra bootstraps idea that, you know, if black men aren't succeeding as head coaches in the NFL, it's because they're not trying hard enough uh, or they're going about things the wrong way is is simply nonsense. And until until that roadblock and that impasse is really um, recognized and a called by name, it's going to be difficult uh, for guys like Jim Caldwell to get the head coaching jobs that they so clearly deserve. Well, lack of understanding and a lack of self-awareness, you talk about uh, that anecdote that he tells you. He's not just telling you. He you know, tells young black men in a football accelerator program about his experience at Augusta National trying to, I guess, see eye to eye with them, even though for the majority of its history, black men haven't been able to play golf at Augusta National. And even in his own franchise, you know, his family has had the benefit of being able to work for him um, and have aligned to those opportunities in a way that someone like Will McClay naturally uh, wouldn't. He his, point, his point was you have to be willing to, to do really, really inordinate uh things that you have to, you know, strive to a really, really extreme degree, uh, to, to get anywhere in the NFL, to even get a foothold in the NFL, whether as a player or a coach or a manager or an owner, which is true. I, I don't think anyone disputes that. Uh, but I, I think the lack of recognition is that, is that very, very qualified, even overqualified black men are striving inordinately, uh, without adequate uh, return on their inordinate efforts. Uh, and, and I, and to me, there's nothing clearer about that than the fact that, you know, that the home, the idea, uh, that, you know, I mean, he, he had to go very deeply into debt. Okay. To, to make his first oil strikes and to, and to buy the Dallas Cowboys. I mean, there's just not a system in this country that, that would enable a, a black man, uh, in those years to have done the very same thing. There's just no way that that credit was available to them. And it's it's really strange. You know, I when I look at the league right now, I feel like what we're looking at with uh, black head coaches is just identical to the black quarterback syndrome of the 1960s. You know, the league is just very, very, very late in uh, in becoming confident in the leadership skills of black men. 
whether it's playing quarterback or uh, being head coaches. You know, it's funny because it's, when you look at the real cultural change makers in the league, it's not just Jerry Jones. It's Robert Kraft with the Patriots, the Mara family with the Giants, and you know, the Roonies with the Steelers. Only one of those foundational franchises and families has ever hired a black coach. Is Jerry Jones just a representative of the overall issues the league is facing, or is he hand-in-hand hand why, in many ways, the league is facing those issues? No, as we wrote in the piece, he's very much the representative man in the NFL, among NFL owners. I don't think any of us uh, at the Washington Post believes that 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 story was just about Jerry Jones. I mean, I don't think that Bob Kraft's high school uh, was any more or less integrated in 1957. He went to Brookline High School in Boston. And of course, Boston had its own issues uh, with school integration. You know, the Maras, uh, the Mara family, uh, they come from, you know, extremely, extremely uh, white privileged. Uh, they all go to Fordham or Holy Cross University. Uh, you, you know, they come from Westchester, which is, you know, a, a, you know, well over 90% white, um, you know, not mixed communities, let's face it, you know. Um, and so I don't think, you know, we're not trying to stick Jerry Jones with the whole tab. This is an issue for every team in the league and the league office. And I think it's really critical to point out, Jerry Jones is the only, only NFL owner that had the honesty and the courage to sit down and talk to us about race. I mean, one of the most interesting things about the story is that we put requests out to all 32 owners and to Roger Goodell. Uh, the only one of those entities that agreed to sit down and talk to us was Jerry Jones. And he did so for over two and a half hours. And he did so for the most part uh, with a great deal of emotional honesty. And so we really give him credit for that. It's almost as if there is acknowledgement, there's a problem, but there's no acknowledgement that there's political will to solve it. It seems like Jerry Jones is saying essentially, we don't really care about the renewal rule or solving this issue. Do you think more broadly that is true? I think it's true that the Rooney rule is, is utterly useless. I, I think that uh, the black uh, men that I've talked to in the league uh, coaches uh, probably have uh, as little use for the Rooney rule as the owners do themselves. One of the interesting things that Jerry Jones and, and most forthright and honest things that Jerry Jones told us was that, look, you know, I have not hired a coach based on a job interview. Uh, that's not how it works. Uh, I hire men I know. I mean, his first coach at the Dallas Cowboys was Jimmy Johnson, who he played with at the University of Arkansas. Uh, his second coach of the Cowboys was Barry Switzer, who he had played football with and roomed with at the University of Arkansas. Uh, the, uh, the bottom line is that, as he said, he said, look, I, I didn't, hire those guys based on an interview. I hired them because I knew them. So the question becomes, how can owners uh, come to know NFL coaching talent, black men, NFL coaching talents uh, in a, in a more uh, healthy, intimate way. And so that they feel comfortable hiring them and turning over the keys to their organization to them. Uh, because right now it's a charade. These job interviews are charades. A lot of the coaching hires are predetermined well, well, well in advance. That's exactly what the Brian Flores lawsuit is all about. You know, he feels like uh, Flores believes that he and others have been put through sham interview processes when owners had already predetermined in their own minds who they really wanted. And they're just checking off a box. Well, it shows in his hiring of Mike McCarthy, where they essentially had a sleepover during the interview process. You know, David Tepper at the opening press conference when he hired Matt Rule said in front of live mics that he reminds him of himself, and that's why he hired him. So Matt Rule already out of that role, uh, but certainly the, the, the proof is in the pudding. I, the credit for Jerry Jones in terms of being honest um, is important because not only was he good with his time, but we know other owners, Dan Snyder, for example, would not only not speak to, they'd probably shut down anyone else 
you'd want to talk to and pressure them to not talk. In your experience, you know, covering Dan Snyder, who is constantly in controversy, I just wonder, why is he still an owner? We struggle to get any sort of diversity in these roles, and yet when someone has the role and isn't doing a great job with it, it's almost like it takes such a high bar for them to fail out of it. Why, in your estimation, are the other owners still putting up with Dan Snyder? You know, it's a strange honor among pirates. You know, I think that they are very, very, very uncomfortable with the notion of forcing another owner out uh, simply based on personal distaste for how he runs his show. So, in other words, uh, they all feel like they have skeletons in their closet or they all feel like they may have done things as business people uh, that that others might not be so approving of. But they uh, they don't want somebody taking away their billion dollar business uh, based on that, you know. Um, so I mean, I think it's that simple. I you know I think they think it would be a terrible precedent to pry the team away from Dan Snyder because they may very well have behaved in unsavory ways themselves, or they're just simply afraid of some sort of business precedent. Uh, and also, and I think this is a big factor too. I think it's a bad precedent as far as the owners are concerned because they're afraid it will scare away new investors so that when the time comes, when, when Dan Snyder sells, as we also fervently hope he does, you want to have a lot of people being willing to bid on the team uh, with deep pockets and sound business sense. And you could scare away some of those people if they think, well, there's a chance that my franchise could someday be taken away from me if I get embarrassed publicly. And so they don't want to go down that road. And so I think that what is happening behind the scenes is a, a game of uh, a high, high leverage chess, where the, the league is making it, it clear with an anaconda strategy to Dan Snyder that his ownership of the team is unsustainable. Uh, he's got a lot of debt that he has to service. He's caught in a vicious cycle where uh, he's highly leveraged, the team is leveraged, and he needs a new stadium quite badly to enhance the financial performance of the team to pay down that debt. And so the league, I think, is letting that reality sink in slowly but surely and making it plain to him that they also have uh, uh, approval over whoever he might want to bring in as minority partners to give himself some financial relief. And I don't think there's any way in the world he would get that approval. Uh, I think that the league is making it clear to Snyder that his one and only option is to sell and get top dollar for the team so that someone else can come in and run this team appropriately and get a new stadium built and, uh, and make the franchise a, a, a viable market again for the NFL. I just look at it. If I was a prospective owner and I would actually think the opposite, if there's an owner who is bringing bad PR to the league, not only not making money for the league, but potentially stealing money from the other owners, that would be an issue that gave me pause. And thus the current owners might want to cut that out like cancer. But Snyder has not been shy about going at other powerful individuals. You look at the fact that Amazon pays a billion per year to be a rights holder with the NFL. And he's certainly floated conspiracy theories about the motivations of Jeff Bezos and what that may mean for reporting on him and things that he has done. When you heard Snyder floating that narrative, how did you respond? Oh, it's ludicrous. I mean, look, Dan Snyder will say or do anything to distract from the fact that his predicament is of his own making. Uh, his debts are of his own making, his mismanagement is of his own making, his scandals are of his own making, and they are his own responsibility. You know, he can peddle all the conspiracy theories he wants about enemies, but the fact of the matter is that his situation is entirely constructed by one person only, and that is Dan Snyder, with his terrible personal habits and his awful mismanagement. You're here. Well said. I actually want to get your perspective on another situation you've been covering, sadly, owners behaving badly is not unique to football. You know, you've done a great job reporting the NWSL. And I want to read back to you uh, a bit of a passage and get, you know, a little bit more in depth in terms of what brought you to the place where this is what you wrote. It's on the NWSL's toxic dispute between a man who failed and the woman who should replace him. 
And you're right. The root problem in the National Women's Soccer League abuse scandal is that the owners haven't run the organization as a real business. This is vividly apparent in the petty person of Washington Spirit owner Steve Baldwin, who treated a championship team as a backbiting crony clique and apparently thinks a fiduciary is a birdbath. That the NWSL allowed the Spirit's noxious and contentious ownership limbo situation to go on for so long is keeping with league leadership's habit of deafening silence at the top, which enabled hand-tossing amateurs and abusers to operate at will and on whim. Shots fired and great writing at its finest. What brought you to that place of feeling that this is something that needed to be pointed out so clearly? Well, look, I mean, this is supposed to be a national professional sports league, right? Uh, for the most popular uh, game on the planet. And we have an owner here who decided that it was uh, good business to hire his daughter's club coach to run the organization. That is exhibit A, that these male owners who bought into these franchises, they wanted the status and the prestige of saying, oh, I'm an owner of a, of a sports franchise. Uh, and then they ran them like little personal fiefdoms. They didn't treat them seriously. They wouldn't, they wouldn't treat any other business endeavor, true business endeavor, with that kind of cavalier cronyism. They really wouldn't. They would not be hiring patently unqualified buddies uh, you know, to run businesses or giving them sinecures in, in, in businesses that had to answer to any sort of board or who had to answer to any sort of shareholder. Uh, and, and so it's just absurd. You know, it, it's it's not been run professionally. It's fundamentally amateur hour. We spoke to Diana Matheson a couple episodes ago, and it's one of the principal reasons why she wants to talk to female investors and female owners about being part of the Canadian Domestic League that she is starting in 2025. Not to say that female owners or executives don't make mistakes or above reproach, but we've seen for far too long that men find ways to make mistakes time and time again, especially uh, in making sure that women's sport is a safe space. So thank you for writing uh, and speaking truth to power as per usual. Before I let you go, I want to tap into your football brain a bit because, you know, you've written about the football brain of Kyle Shanahan and how it fascinates you in terms of his ability to cultivate competent to above average quarterback play, no matter who he is given, given his innovative style. Why is his, you know, next platform with Mr. Irrelevant uh, something that bears watching? You know, I'm just fascinated by Kyle Shanahan in in general, uh, because I think that his knowledge of the game is so deep. I mean, he started studying it as a boy at Mike Shanahan's knee. You know, his father won a couple of Super Bowls and he you know, he's a ball boy in those locker rooms. He, he played the game a little bit, uh, you know, as a college player, as a receiver. And, uh, you know, so he kind of, Kyle Shanahan knows football the way like Austrians know skiing, you know, it's like, he's really been so deeply immersed in the game. And one of the things I find so as interesting as what he's doing with Brock Purdy right now, turning a third string quarterback in, you know, into a, a, a rookie phenom who's now won two games in a row for a, what appears to be a, a, a playoff, a serious playoff contender. He's not only done that, he has spawned great other head coaches. Matt LaFleur, you know, grew up on Kyle Shanahan's staffs. Okay. Um, you know, Mike McDaniel, Robert Saleh, what he's doing with the New York Jets, you know, taking this, this, I mean, doormat of an organization and Soleil has got them, you know, respectable again. He not only turns out, um, you know, really good quarterback performances, no matter who is under center for the most part, he turns out really good other coaches. Uh, that's one of the things that, that I started thinking about just this week too. look at the number of Shanahan, uh, staff alum around the league and look at what they're doing. Yeah. It's a great point. He's got a coaching tree that is not just uh, on the offensive side. Uh, he's developing really good defensive coaches as well. And I imagine that's because he's pushing them uh, in meetings in terms of how would you handle uh, different scenarios. Uh, so it's so, so great observation by you. Once again, 
great reporting by you. Uh, thank you so much uh, for this work, work that's certainly uh, not easy, but really, really important. Uh, we'll continue to follow along to see uh, what fascinates you next. <laughs> thank you so much for having me. Thanks again to Sally Jenkins for that convo and the reporting. If you want to read the reporting, and it is extensive, the Washington Post has a series, as I mentioned, called Blackout, looking at black NFL coaches or lack thereof. Go into our show notes. Uh, wherever you're listening to this podcast, you can find the article there. The Post's motto is democracy dies in darkness, and Sally is a great example of why funding great journalism is important. We're going to talk about maybe the lack thereof of great journalism in response to that very story after the break. Stay with us. My name is Lucille Bryan. I'm Clifton Bryan. My grandson is a show. And I'm so happy that you are listening to Go and Deep with Donovan Bennett. I'm so glad that you had the show. Thank you. Thank you, Grandma and Granddad. Back for the second portion of Going Deep. And there is this phenomenon as a journalist, especially as a writer. Pour your heart and soul into something. You research it really well. You go through line edit after line edit after line edit. And then you press publish. It goes out into the ether, like into the internet, which is not a real place. And it's not yours anymore. Then it's the world, and they do what they want with it, Dale. Just look at the headline, just pull certain quotes. Or in the case of the article about Jerry Jones that we just talked about, they will just take a photo. And what I found fascinating, show, was that you'd think maybe the photo would be great promotion for the article, and that would lead people to go then read the article. But in fact, the opposite happened on all of the studio shows and all of the radio talk shows. The conversation was about that photo being unearthed, and there was an attribution back to the article, and people had no idea that it came from an article, which brought us down a rabbit hole of a bunch of different theoretical conversations about what this means, about Jerry Jones and him as an owner or a potential racist. All questions answered if you read the article, but where the entire conversation for me jumped the shark is when LeBron James spoke to Assembled Press post-Lakers game in a calculated move, and brought up that phenomenon of Jerry Jones and this photo being unearthed in relation to Kyrie Irving and his anti-Semitism or non-anti-Semitism takes. Let's listen to what LeBron said, and I'll try to push back when I feel it's needed. I was wondering why I haven't gotten a question from you guys about the Jerry Jones photo. But when the Kyrie thing was going on, you guys were quick to ask us questions about that. Okay, stop right there. Stop right there. You've already lost me with the premise. The hypothesis doesn't make any sense. You were wondering why you guys, the Los Angeles Lakers beat media, didn't ask him about the Jerry Jones photo. Well, a couple reasons. One, you're talking to a room full of NBA reporters. Two... You're in Los Angeles. So why would they ask you about Jerry Jones? They ask you about Kyrie because, one, it happened in the NBA. Two, you're a former teammate of Kyrie's. And three, Kyrie being traded to the Lakers was a real rumor. And the fact that we weren't sure he was ever going to be able to go back to the Nets was on the table during the height of all of this. Furthermore, what Kyrie did was happening in the here and now what Jerry Jones did happen a long time ago, not to excuse it, but for me, that that is why. Like, There isn't much to wonder. Am I missing something here, Show? No, I don't think so. And I, and I think, too, the other, the other aspect of what was going on with Kyrie was that, you know, like the, the, the NBA, I think, has, has made a positive image for itself in the sense that many of its stars including LeBron James, are people who feel comfortable speaking out about, like, virtually every major social issue, right? Like, they talk about uh, Black Lives Matter, as they should, and they talk about 
a lot of they, I mean, they were very vocal when uh, owners were saying and doing wrong things, whether it was Sterling or or the Suns owner Sarver, right? And, and they, they were very vocal on voicing their opinions on how that like should not continue and so on. And then you have Kyrie Irving, and it just it took. Like, I actually don't even remember what the timeline was, but it felt like it took a really long time before someone like LeBron actually spoke up. And and I think with LeBron in particular, he was, he's kind of commenting on the fact that, oh, you guys were asking me, like as as if like to say, why, why am I the one getting grilled about this? And as if like he didn't play with Kyrie Irving for like the better part of Kyrie's early career and Kyrie hitting the big time shot against the Warriors at the end of the NBA finals to the clinch a win. Like they were, they like know each other. So I, it's, I guess what I'm saying is it's not, crazy for for NBA reporters to want a reply from LeBron James on Kyrie Irving because it's not like some random other NBA player. These got guys who like like you mentioned there were rumors that Kyrie was getting traded to Los Angeles to play with LeBron James. So I I again I'm not I'm not excusing the Jerry Jones stuff, but uh and like Sally mentioned, he he did talk about it and he addressed it to a certain degree, and maybe this is something that needs to be addressed more, certainly. But um I, I, I kind of agree. I'm usually honestly, I'm usually on board with the things LeBron says like most of the time. It's just that one I think kind of did lose me a little. As am I. And I'm on board with some of the things that he is about to say. Just I'm one for deductive logic. Had a minor in Phil, and now that's the way I think. And so I don't agree with all of the premises he is trying to pass by. So let's continue to listen. When I watch Kyrie talk and he says, I know who I am, but I want to keep the same energy when we're talking about my people and the things that we've been through. And that Jerry Jones photo is one of those moments that our people, black people, have been through in America. And I feel like as a black man, as a black athlete, as someone with power and a platform, when we do something wrong or or something that people don't agree with, it's on every single tabloid, every single news coverage, it's on the bottom ticker, it's asked about every single day. But it seems like to me that the whole Jerry Jones situation photo, and I know it was years and years ago, and we all make mistakes. I get it. But it seemed like it's just been buried under, like, oh, it happened. Okay, we just we just move on. Pause it right there. It would be one thing if LeBron said, I don't understand why you ask me about Kyrie, and you don't ask Dak Prescott about Jerry Jones. Because that would make sense. Dak Prescott is the most influential Dallas Cowboy, and he's black. But to say, I don't understand why you're asking me about Kyrie and not Jerry Jones doesn't make any sense, especially if you're going to tie it to what Kyrie said about keeping the same energy. Because the point that LeBron gets to about black people being held to a higher standard is without question true. And I agree. But that doesn't remove the fact that what Kyrie did was wildly problematic and that he didn't explain himself and that he actually only made things worse for himself every time he spoke in front of a live microphone and camera. So we can't say it's not fair. Like Kyrie said, we got to keep the same energy because Kyrie threw gasoline on his own fire. He made his situation worse. And Jerry Jones has quotes on the record in the story. We, we don't need anyone else to tell us what Jerry Jones feels. He told us in the story. We were asking about Kyrie because we didn't understand why he shared that film and what in that film he believed. What, he, what in that film he believed was worth sharing. That's the difference. So I generally agree with LeBron. But we're going to have a boy who cried wolf scenario if we try to equate things that are not equal. So, I, frankly, they're not. Bottom line is, I didn't really have to ask anybody about how they felt about Jerry Jones being in that photo. Because Jerry Jones being racially unaware 
if not racist. It's not news. I, I, if you would have asked me if I thought Jerry Jones was proactive in his anti-black racism, I would have said no. He's shown us who he is. He was against kneeling, kind of capitulated and did a weird kneel before any flag came out on the field, and then like quickly made sure everyone got up. He was at the head of the storm when the Colin Kaepernick conversation was happening, so much to say he said none of his players, forget about his two knees, none of his players were allowed to kneel. So, yeah, I know who Jay Jones is. What we were trying to figure out was who Kyrie Irving is. And for you to equate this with black people being covered unfairly, it's just, it's not accurate. And it's not giving us any credence when we actually stand up and say, you know what? Black people are covered unfairly because that's not the case. I think a part of it, too, when it comes to LeBron James is also that he is like uh, perhaps one of the most and I'm, I'm not like boiling it down only to this, but he is perhaps one of the most famous like celebrity Cowboys fans like it, I just it was I think I think that is a part of it to a certain degree because he like there's probably an alternate reality where LeBron never plays basketball and is in and is a star NFL tight end or something like that for the Dallas Cowboys and and I think he his own relationship with Jerry Jones and the way he personally interacts with the Dallas Cowboys the same way any of us interact with our favorite brands and our favorite teams is probably in some way at play here because he is a probably the most famous athlete alive or like one of the top three most famous athletes alive or certainly in North America. And then on top of that, he's allowed to be a fan of things himself. So I, I do, I think that also goes back to what you were saying. You're like, Oh, well, why is LeBron in an, in front of NBA reporters bringing up bringing up Jerry Jones, an NFL owner, and I think that's kind of in some way, shape, and form related. But I but I do agree with you. Like he makes a good point about how black athletes are covered differently and have are held to different standards and are for the most part treated unfairly. Uh, but at the same time, I just I I can't <laughs> entirely get behind the idea that it, like I I guess I don't want to like accuse LeBron of like whataboutism necessarily, but it it does kind of start down that road. And then I mean the way the clip ends is he literally just because he I, it, the way it starts is like, so you could hear someone ask him like Hey like, LeBron what about and then he cuts them off and he's like Let me finish Let me finish and then at the very end of the clip he literally physically drops the microphone and walks off and does not field any questions on it either. Well, let's listen to the end and then put a bow on the conversation. It seemed like it's just been buried under like, oh, it happened. Okay, we just we just move on. And I was just kind of disappointed that I haven't received that question from you guys. Yeah, and then after that, he he he, he physically just bolts off the <laughs> off of the media availability set. That's how literally how it ends. Here's the thing, because LeBron is asked about things that are not just about his team or his current or former teammates. He's spoken eloquently about the death of George Floyd, bringing Brittany Griner home, uh, justice for Breonna Taylor. But he's asked about these things because he's been vocal about them yeah. via his social media. You mentioned it. His track record about talking about owners. Le- LeBron has a bigger following than all of the outlets that he was talking to combined. He has his own production company. He could create any content he wants to talk about whatever he wants, including Jerry Jones. He's not beholden to the assembled media to do it. What's that? What's that TV show he does where he like tackles social kind of social media the issues? Shop. The shop, yeah. Like I, I would watch. I would sit down and watch an episode where LeBron talks about Jerry Jones or literally any of the issues you mentioned. And he could like that's within his power to do so. No question. And the fact that he didn't or hasn't done that is a big part of the reason why I assume those journalists didn't ask him the question because where. Where you want to draw the line? Hey, LeBron, talk to us about the Iranian footballers right. who are now in danger for speaking up for women's rights. LeBron, your thoughts on the one love armband? Would you wear a one love armband in the NBA, LeBron? Like the other piece of this is, as a racialized and in this case black athlete, you get asked a lot of questions that your white teammates don't get asked. 
They don't, they don't have to answer to all of society's ills, but you are forced with asking those questions. And I could understand why that would be unfair, which is why it seems antithetical that he's asking for the smoke proactively when if you want to talk, talk about these things, he could. And then when he brings it up to your point and the media is ready to have a dialogue, he leaves. And so they could have had a full discussion. They could have gone deep, if you will, about Jerry Jones. Or there could have been some pushback, like we're doing, about him relating it to Kyrie. And he could underscore his point better, which I have yet to see. But I think that's why that rubbed me the wrong way. I am curious to see what LeBron's next answer to a social justice-ish related question will be eventually. Well, let me give you a scenario. Hey, LeBron, you love... All things Cleveland, now that you don't like the Dallas Cowboys anymore, you're cheering for the Cleveland Browns. Right. Should Deshaun Watson be a starting quarterback, LeBron? Does he want to answer that question? No, probably of not. Of course not. No. And I don't think it would be fair to ask him. Now, if he had strong feelings on it either way and he wanted to speak on it, certainly he could. But uh, I don't think he really thought out the logical argument that he was trying to portray. Well, and I mean, you think, talk about things that LeBron has addressed in the media in the, in the not too recent past. And I mean, the, and this one made sense. For example, we we've talked a lot about the passing of Grant wall. And of course, before Grant became a big time soccer reporter, he, one of the, I, I honestly think one of the biggest pieces Grant wrote was that big piece in sports illustrated about the quote unquote, the chosen one. And it's like that it probably honestly, it might be one of the most famous covers sports illustrated has put out of the like hundreds or thousands of covers they've put out. in like, since the turn of the century of the picture of LeBron in high school with the green headband, he's holding, I think like a golden basketball and he's pointing at the camera. It's a great, it's a great picture. It's a fantastic story. And it makes sense that LeBron was asked about the passing of Grant Wall because he met Grant. Grant met his family. It was a, it's a pretty, it's like a relatively famous piece of journalism as far as the legacy of LeBron James goes. And he was asked about Grant and you know how nice he was to his family and, and so on and so forth. Like that kind of stuff makes sense. And obviously it would make sense for LeBron to, if he, if he chose to, and he mentioned he has a gigantic platform and I'm all for athletes using their platforms in a positive way, but uh, I like that. That's one example of what one time you're we kind of like, oh yeah, okay. It's kind of nice to hear LeBron comment on this versus, like you said, maybe the less than logical uh, perspective of he shared on the on the Kyrie Irving situation. I appreciate you allowing me to vent with this platform. You're a great therapist, show. And thank you for listening on behalf of my personal therapist show and Lance on the boards. Thank you for taking the time out of your day to listen to us. Talk to you next time.